You know how I feel like tonight, a good clarion call. <laughs> uh, not necessarily to duty, of course. Oh, by the way, uh, that's a good word for you. Uh, that is tonight's uh, magic key word, uh, clarion. Look it up, it's spelled with an A, clarion. Clarion, carrion, clarion. <laughs> Come on, bring it up there, boy. Don't give him a chance. That's the, that's the mystery word. If we mention it again tonight, it's good for Still bugged? I mean, still. <laughs> uh, did you did you read about in the paper? Of course, the the big things that are really really significant are hardly ever really reported. Uh, it's always been the problem. Uh, did you read in the paper about this company over in Jersey that is in trouble with the uh, employees? Uh, there, in fact, it looks like there's going to be a giant strike because the company is trying to write into the contract that the employees have to observe a work break at least twice a day, of no more than 17 minutes duration. <laughs> it's a fact. I'm not kidding you. They, they, they insist that from now on, because things aren't so good in the business anymore, uh, there's all kinds of competition and stuff, that the employees have to take a work break. Uh, and uh, they went on, and the company went on and listed uh, things that they did. For example, coffee breaks, rest period, lunch period, ticket selling vacation planning collections for people who have gotten married, people who have gotten divorced, people who have died, people who are about to die, people who are just feeding like taking up a collection, people who are selling Christmas seals in August, all this stuff. And it's a, <laughs> this is the facts. This, so so they, they, they came along and they measured the amount of time that's spent in this company uh, by the average employee every day, either talking to people about those things, uh, fending off people, uh, are going out themselves to collect, and they realized that now work is the exception in the company and is highly resented by the employees, by the way. And so they want to get it right down in black and white that the employees are required to have two work breaks a day. Required. And you know what's happening? The employees are really up in arms, and they're really bristling now. And it's sweeping all over. Jimmy Hoffa's been on the phone for three hours about this thing. <laughs> and, and I just thought, uh, who's bugging you? I mean, like, like the other day, I'm looking through the silly section of the New York Times, which uh, can on any given day be almost any section. But uh, on Sunday, it's usually that page, you know, in the back where they sell the hip boots, the giant-sized hip boots and the, uh, and the telescopes that will enable you to see Mars, all this wild stuff, surplus. It's always called surplus. And I don't know where the Army got all those balloons shaped like Mickey Mouse and that, that they're always selling a surplus. I mean, surplus from what? <laughs> you know, the idea of surplus used to be that the Army ran, you know, they, they ran out of war and they were left with, uh, like, say, 18 million rounds of uh, 105 uh, ammunition, something like that. Well, then that's surplus, you know. You don't have anybody to shoot at. The stuff is going bad. you got to get rid of it. Uh, you know, to lay in the fresh stocks. So that's what surplus was. Now, all of a sudden, all these Mickey Mouse balloons and stuff are popping up. And I can't remember many of those I saw. Now, oh, there were a few. 
But I don't see how they could have much surplus because they were hard to get your hands on. I mean, especially back in the ba- real days of the war. I mean, I, I, for example, they had they had 5,000 surplus beach balls uh, listed two weeks ago in the Times. Now, I'll tell you this, that it is true. During the war, they did have a lot of beach balls around. Uh, and it is true. But, you know, towards the end, it was very difficult to get them, especially in the Signal Corps. I don't know how they had have wound up with a whole warehouse full of the darn things. You know, it's a funny thing. So, so uh, right there in the middle of the silly page is a is a note. All it says is, who are you? Well, it stopped me in my tracks. I've been trying to figure that one out for centuries, you know. <laughs> you know it's funny. How, I, I wonder how, how people, it must be great to be able to wander right through life and never question, never ask these questions. You say, who are you? I am Charles M. Smithers. Oh, now, come on. Now, there's more to it than that. Just Charles M. Smithers. You mean to tell me if your name was gone, you wouldn't be anything? Well, I'm Charles M. Smithers, I am, and I live in Englewood, New Jersey. Oh, is that right? You know, a lot of people think they'll still be Americans when they're dead. You know? <laughs> it's a funny thing, but <laughs> it's tr- you know, that's true. All nationality disappears immediately. You'd be surprised. <laughs> and, and you're not an American before you're born, either. You're only one briefly. And even that is a doubtful thing from time to time because nobody really quite knows what an American is, although guys set themselves up every five minutes as experts on the subject. Uh, they generally define an American as what they are, uh, which is the easy way to define it. You see, and the safest way, too, because you wouldn't want to define yourself out of business, which has happened to some tyrants in the past, you know. <laughs> Somebody, yeah, there's a truth, you know, one day the guy puts up the thing on the door, you know, he posts the rules on who's an American today, and somebody looks and the, they discover the third rule, that the guy that put the rules out didn't really fit that one himself. And the next thing you know, oh, it's a mess. Then they got new rules and the whole business. Are you an American? I mean, seriously, I can sing the Jack Armstrong song. Does that qualify me? Yes, I suppose. <laughs> I've eaten my share of Wheaties. I have. I've read my share of ads. And I've done all of it. I mean, really, uh, it's an interesting thing about that because there was a big discussion in Congress the other day. Two guys got up, two congressmen, and they they argued it out in the congressional record about who was an American. And, of course, they were both implying that the other wasn't, in spite of the fact that he was the honored gentleman from Pittsburgh or Utah or wherever it was from, you know. The implication was that he wasn't really an American. (laughs) You know what really an American is, don't you? Oh, an American is, is whoever's in your party. That's who's an American. Whoever believes like you do, that's what a real American is. I mean, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're. By the way, uh, it's fascinating to me that most of the conservatives today that they call conservatives are anything but. They're radicals. Uh, as a matter of fact, they they propose to tear up everything that's been written down since the Magna Carta. As a matter of fact, some of them are even against the Magna Carta, which is, by the way, quite radical actually. <laughs> and yet they call themselves conservatives. And, and on the other hand, most liberals are anything but. They're very, very, uh, very irritated about people who do not, who do not think right. I mean, they're, they're very, very anti-non-right-thinking people. Oh, yes, that's, that's, uh, that is a very strong... Of course, uh, that's true of anybody. Uh, who, who thinks right? Well, us. I mean, who, who thinks right is the way I think. That's all there is to that. I mean, that's easy to decide. Uh, there's no problem with that one. I mean, that's the easiest one to put down. So uh, the fist fight goes on, and, and uh, I'd like to know, is there one American out there who really knows he's an American? I mean, absolutely, without question, he knows. Now, now, uh, don't, don't come along and tell me you're an American because you were born in Chicago. I was, too. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, obviously, I've, I've uh, <laughs> been all kinds. Have, have you wondered whether or not they have a file on you someplace? 
somebody with all kinds of little footnotes and conclusions about you, you know. Well, anyway, I'm reading this silly section of the Times, and, and it says, Who are you? And I read a little bit further on. It says, Now you can get... Oh, there's an American out there? Well, first of all, ask him for his credentials. I am not going to talk to any phonies because we're liable to get involved with all kinds of bad stuff. And uh, I don't want to do that. I, I want to make sure. I, I want to make sure that, uh, that he's right, you know. I mean, that he has all the... Uh, uh, will you please show me his credentials? Uh, oh, incidentally, yeah. Born in France. Well, that's about as good a set of credentials as I know of offhand. As a matter of fact, most foreigners who do come over here make better Americans than the Americans, actually. <laughs> you know, they appreciate a lot of things that most Americans don't even know exist, for that matter. It's the truth, you know. I, and he's laughing because he knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, for crying out loud. Well, anyway, we have says, who are you? And uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't miss that one, you know. I had to stop and read that one. It was right next to the thing where they were selling the used rubber kayaks that you blow up. comes with a pump and the whole business, say, and it says, Who are you? It says, Validated proof of personal identification is now available to the public. I mean, you can now be validated. It's now available to the public. Validated proof of who you are is now available to the public. Of course, it's been, in, it's been available to all those guys that are in for a long time, you know, those big shots with the cards that they flash. It says, uh, Confirm your identity with a distinctive national identification document. And that's in capital letters. Uh, very official. It says, document is wallet-sized, tamper-proof, plastic, laminated, duplicate furniture, if ever lost. It's a do-it-yourself. And then they go on to say, a do-it-yourself ID card. <laughs> you, in other words, you identify yourself. Well, that killed that one right there. There it goes, down the drain with all the rest of the silly stuff. It says, it's issued by an exclusive source. You. There's only one other you. Issue your own ID card. We'll laminate it. And, boy, there's nothing more official than lamination. I, mean, I like to be laminated myself once in a while. On Saturday nights, late, of course. But uh, if, there's, if there's anyone around here uh, uh, who, who really knows he's an American, I'd be glad to hear from him. And I, I'd just like to talk to him. I'd like to reach out and shake, shake his hand, you know. Speaking of what goes on in... Uh, in uh, I got it here. Hold on. Hold on here. I got a picture of a coffin, by the way. It just came, came to my attention here again. That's recommended by leading funeral directors and is guaranteed by good housekeeping, which uh, I think is kind of nice. I like uh, things tidied up around the house. And uh, I also have a note here in case you're interested. Now, uh, you see, what we're trying to do is to get at the basic problem of what we are and who we are and whither goest us. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's going to be awful if we found out. Maybe we better quit fooling around. I mean, we'll find out one night and then where it's going to... I mean, oh, boy. I mean, that would be rotten. I mean, actually rotten. I mean, to really find out the truth, you know, can't you see? So, uh, here we got a note here from Raleigh, North Carolina. It's from an official university. See, North Carolina State College is out to uh, move forward in the fields of the agricultural arts and sciences. They have now produced a good egg. Incidentally, North Carolina is known as the good egg state. A lot of good eggs come from North Carolina. I've, I met a couple in the Army. I'll never forget one of them. Huh. Yeah, he had a little problem there, but uh, he was good egg, by and large. And they do have on their license plate, you know, the good egg state. At a breakfast in Raleigh, North Carolina, the governor of North Carolina will be presented with a supply of eggs. The new North Carolina eggs. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. This, this is a special bulletin that has just come in. Uh, North Carolina State College has produced now a, a square egg. 
No, seriously. They, they now have chickens that lay square eggs. They're very uncomfortable chickens. But nevertheless, they're giving all for us. You know, for years we've all wanted a square egg. <laughs> you know, I mean, egg cups really, in a sense, are kind of, well, I mean, you know. Uh, first of all, the egg, by the way, is a very fragile shape. Beautiful shape, actually, artistically. But it doesn't hold up in the dishwasher. And, uh, no, this is the truth. Uh, egg cups are very, very fragile. So now they have produced a square egg. As I said, it's very uncomfortable on the hen. Uh, and, and here's the way they produce a square egg, in case you're interested. Dr. Henry W. Guerin of the college's poultry science department told how square eggs are produced. First, a cube-shaped template or form. Now, that's actually a mold. I mean, the template, that's a very highfalutin word for it, but it's a mold, see, of calcium was prepared, and the egg, minus its regular shell, was placed inside. The, the template was then introduced to the hen. I like the way they say that. Uh, which then produced a square egg. <laughs> I like the way they put that. It was introduced to the hen. I, I, um, I don't know whether you know anything. I, I mean, this is a terrible sound, but what happened is actually, well, well, uh, We'll keep that for the next semester. Anyway, the doctor went on to say, she'll put a shell around anything, this hen. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then they went on to say, then the scientists then have to remove the cube-shaped egg, quote, because the hen can't lay it properly. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. All kinds of corners on squares there. Uh, Dr. Guerin doesn't believe square eggs will replace the standard variety soon. Although more convenient for packing and storing, they aren't really as convenient for the hens. And they are not nearly as strong as the regular eggs. There are several things. And in fact, uh, well, as a matter of fact, there's a delegation of hens now down in North Carolina, and they're raising all kinds of cane. Uh, oh, there's an American consensus. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Well, he just says that he, his qualification is that he, and, he is for mother love, for good guys, the Yankees, and against sin. Well, that's fairly good qualifications. Uh, however, uh, however, the the new neo-American, however, has a lot to th a lot of bad things to say about mother love. The neo-American, you know, is in an analysis right now. Uh, a good American is an analysis, and of course, we have just scratched mother love off the list of things that Americans are for. Okay. They are not quite yet determined whether or not Mother Love does come under the category of uh, apple pie and Coca-Cola and various other things of that type. General Motors, the Yankees, Mickey Mantle, uh, and nice good things like WOR, AM, and FM. And, of course, a good American is always anti-singing commercial. If he's a good American, that You'll is. feel better about smoking with a taste of Kent. You'll feel better about smoking with the taste of Kent, Kent, with the Micronite filter. Refines away a harsh flavor, refines away a hot taste. It makes the taste of a cigarette mild as a balmy day in the month of May. Kent is the best for the flavor you like. Kent is the best for the flavor you like. Yes, for millions, Kent. The cigarette that made the filter famous is the best because it combines the perfect blend of finest quality tobaccos for true tobacco taste with a free and easy draw of the famous Micronite filter. You'll feel better about smoking with the taste of Kent, Kent, with the Micronite filter. Refines away a harsh flavor. 
Times That's a fact. Americans Christ. hate singing commercials. You'll feel better about smoking with a taste of Kent. Wah, wah. It's true. They, they don't like... Wah, wah. They do not like singing commercials. And uh, interestingly enough, the Europeans dig them. It's a wild thing. I, I'll tell you this. If you've ever been in Europe and you have not taken along a transistor radio, you have missed one of the most important parts of Europe. Really. Uh, I, I, uh, boy, uh, you ought to sit down sometime with Luxembourg radio stuck in one ear. Uh, uh, boy, they have, they have undoubtedly the most uninhibited commercials you ever, oh, you can't imagine what kind of commercials they got. They're wild. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and interestingly enough, you know, almost all of their commercials are made in London. Uh, and uh, it's it's intriguing to hear this this distinguished sounding. Uh, of course, that's one of the thing one thing about Americans. We always assume that anyone who has an English accent automatically is distinguished, and is a superb artist, and is very smart. And it's it's wild to hear them <laughs> doing these wild, silly commercials. And they do commercials. When I say uninhibited, they do stuff on their radio over there that if we did here, in the commercials, if we had a commercial on. Five minutes after that, the FCC would be down here with tear gas. I mean, blasting the salesman right out of their cubby holes. Seriously. And, and uh, <laughs> of course, the listeners would love it. <laughs> Which is a sad fact we have to face, you know. We, we, on one hand, we proclaim one thing, and on the other hand, we're all deep down slobs. And it's a terrible problem. You don't have to fight this. But, of course, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, of, the, uh, of the business of... Uh, what were we speaking of? <laughs> oh yeah, I know what we were speaking of. Whether you're an American or not, and uh, this is this is becoming increasingly hard to uh, determine. You know, an American used to be just a guy who lived in America. Did you know it was as simple as that? Guy came over here, he's a citizen, he's an American, and he could holler anything he wanted. And it really, they really believed it. I mean, it was really, really serious about that. Today now, of course, you've got to do more than that to be an American. You've got to be, <laughs> got to be all kinds of things to be an American, and hardly anybody can really define it, what, what an American is. And, uh, of course, therein lies the great danger, is, is the definition. Now, I'm sure that, that a lot of guys listening out there say, what is this clown talking about? I'm an American. What is he talking about? Well, I'm not so sure that you're an American according to somebody else's definition. For example... I'm quite sure that a lot of guys who listen to this program are defined as un-American purely because they listen to it. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Would you, Ed? Fascinating. I mean, <laughs> by certain people. Now, I'm not saying officially, by certain people. As, for example, most people are described as a nut uh, just because they don't talk the way this nut talks. I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of different kinds of nuttiness. And most people define nuttiness as the other kind. <laughs> that took a long time to settle in, didn't it, there? Uh, that is what nuttiness is. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you, know, you know, I know a guy I know a guy who hasn't read anything but the Wall Street Journal for 27 years, the Wall Street Journal and the back pages of TV Guide. So you can see this guy is really hung on some very interesting values. So he spends all of his time talking about the rest of the world as being nuts. And, and it's intriguing. Now, now here, for example, here's a, here's a wonderful example of what I call dynamic nuttiness in action. In one of the local papers, which happens to be the Democrat Flemington, the Democrat of Flemington, New Jersey, there's a great, there's a great uh, ad, a series of ads on page 26, August 31st, 1961. 
And we have come a long way in our, in our long travail, you know, all of us, us people, crawling up this fantastic pyramid of time, uh, creating this enormous monolith of uh, progress. We're, we're working our way up like, the, like a long skein of ants. Do you see progress that way? As, as a lot of ants crawling up the side of a brick wall? You know, it's like this guy the other day. Did you hear about the guy they caught out in, uh, in Fairbanks, someplace outside of Alaska? In fact, I've got, the, I've got the article. Did you hear about him? He was a tourist up there in, in Alaska, see, and he's out there in the wilds, and he gets lost. Well, for about two months, he wandered around. They figured he was gone. Well, two months, he wandered around up there eating berries and bark, and he was heading towards what he figured was home. Well, when they caught him, they found that he was in a direct beeline for the Arctic Circle and nothing. And they put him in the plane, and he fought all the way back. He said they were taking him the wrong way. And it wasn't until two weeks later, after they poured a lot of water on his head and, and shot him full of all kinds of glucose and stuff, that he finally conceded they might be right. But then again, sadly enough, he might have been right. He was heading back to something that looks like it's going to turn out to be pretty wild. Although I'm not sure that he thought it out that far. So maybe we're heading towards the maybe we're heading towards the Arctic Circle. Man in his rush towards progress. But you know, we can't be convinced of that till 2 weeks later after. <laughs> yeah, well anyway, here here in the Flemington the Democrats, see on page 26 or whatever page it is, there's a great big quarter page ad by the same company, see? And this company has two big ads, exactly the same size, and they are both cheery-looking ads. Each one starts out, ask for our free brochure. Very cheery, see? And the first one on top says, ask for our free brochure about our new utility fallout shelter. Write phone for free brochure with complete sizes and prices. And then right underneath it, it says, write for your free brochure about the new holiday swimming pool. You see, they make it the same way. You just take your choice. It depends on whether you're a conservative or a liberal, which side of the ad you pick, whether you're a radical or whether you're, uh, you know, <laughs> same company. Oh, by the way, each one has underneath it. I think I think one of the most interesting lines of all is one of the lines is one of the one of the great lines. Listen to this one. I, I think this is very significant. Ed, in the swimming pool ad, it says five-year financing arranged. It does not say that in the ad for the fallout shelter. <laughs> now, of course, one of these ads is for positive thinkers. The other is for thinkers. Well, now, now, uh, I suppose uh, it's easy to confuse the two. I mean, uh, the, the two often are confused. You know, speaking of uh, speaking of these problems, I, I, uh, the other day, I casually mentioned. You probably heard it on the air. Speaking of casual mentions, we're going to have to tell you here that we have with us General Tire tonight. And uh, they're having a big sale down at your general general tire dealer. And if you want to ride on premium quality tires, if you want to go in style, I mean, if you want to be found with good rubber on your wheels, I would suggest that you contact your general tire dealer, okay? <laughs> I mean, it would be terrible when they dig you up 4,000 years from now to be found in a, in a, in a battered old second-hand kayak. You know, it's, it's well known that the pharaohs, the Egyptian pharaohs, when they were put away at they were put away with their best, absolutely their best boat was laid aside. In fact, many of them had a new one built for them just for that purpose because they didn't want, you know. My grandmother always used to say when I was on my way to school, she would say, do you have clean socks on? Now, let me see your socks. I want to make sure you don't have holes in them. 
because when you get run over, I don't want them to have awful thoughts about what kind of kids we got around here, how we're bringing you up. Clean underwear and socks without holes. I would suggest you have a pair of clean underwear and some socks without holes in your bomb shelter. You don't want to give people a bad impression. Okay? Along with that cat food, Peggy. It's all right. <laughs> and don't forget to have fresh batteries for your transistor radio. You might want to hear... I'll bet, I'll tell you this, after, after an explosion, I'll bet, I'll bet the radioactivity will be so great in your neighborhood, you will be able to get a signal if you turn on a transistor radio. A high-pitched hum. Have you ever heard of radio? Have you ever heard radioactivity actually on a radio? You know, you can hear radioactivity, you know. Radio, radio, it's the same thing, you know, the same problem, baby. Do you know that when radio first started out back in the 20s, people thought radio caused people to be, caused their hair to fall out? Did you know that? That, that they were besieging radio transmitters all over the United States. It says, you're causing my hair to fall out and my teeth to go bad. All that rotten stuff you're putting on there. Little did they realize it was true took us 35 years to finally, by scientific analysis and tests, to realize that it's actually true. <laughs> Why do you think all the guys are going bald these days at 32? Radio. <laughs> Television is making it even worse. Have you noticed your feet have been hurting lately? <laughs> That's no coincidence. <laughs> no coincidence at all. Well, while we're on the, on the subject of uh, of uh, this, this problem, you know, the problem that we've got, a what? An American is on the phone? How do you know it's an American? Huh? He's what? Oh, it's an American. All right, let me see. Is an American here? Hello, are you an American? Oh, an American, huh? Well, uh, you're one of the few. Uh, have you been cleared? You've been cleared. Okay, you got all... all you filled out forms? All right. Uh, I've got... I've got a... I'm reading a wild book about this guy who institutes uh, these loyalty forms... And uh, he was in the Army, see, and he was a CID officer. And he got so mad that this one guy was made squadron, uh, squadron CO that he instituted a loyalty program. And he had all these guys signing loyalty oaths before they could eat and before they could draw their, uh, their flak suits and all that stuff. And, well, uh, wait a minute. Yeah, he had that too, you see. But what he did was that he arranged it so that everybody but the CO could sign a loyalty oath. And then he turned the CO in as a security risk. <laughs> okay. All right, think that one over. Right. Oh, that's done, you know, every day. Okay, Charlie. Bye-bye. Uh -huh. There's an American out there. He wouldn't give his name. That's a true American. Well, we'll be, uh, we'll be here. By the way, I've noticed that every time I get a letter signed from a real American, they always sign it anonymous, <laughs> which I think is very significant. There's a truth, you know, about every third or fourth day I got a card that says, You rotten, stinking bum! What do you mean, rotten bum you? You rotten, un-American rotten bum you. Sign the real American. Get you off the air, you rotten bum. You ought to be killed, you bum rotten. Signed anonymous. Ex-rotten listener. <laughs> I think that's one of the symptoms. But uh, that's only part of it. Anyway, uh, the other day we casually mentioned in passing uh, a sign that says, uh, watch out, beware, danger, low-flying planes. Did you hear that one? It's out there in Brooklyn, out by that airport, Floyd Bennett Field. There's a sign that says, Danger, fly, low-flying planes. Well, I meant to tell you a story about the time that there was a low-flying plane, and I'll have to tell it to you. It has nothing to do with that sign, except that it reminded me of the story. It was the first time that a low-flying... You know, all kids secretly, and of course men too secretly, but kids perhaps less secretly than men, when they look up at an airplane, they would like to see it fall. 
It's a, it's a terrible thing. Oh, unless, of course, they're in it. But uh, secretly, they would like to see it. You know, somehow. Isn't that true? Oh, you don't think it's true with you, no. You don't want to see what I see. Uh, okay. Or I will exempt all of you. But let's say all of those other rotten people out there. I mean, you know the rotten ones. Oh, you know the guys that look at the crash photos and all that stuff. Uh, well, anyway, they, there is a secret desire to see this airplane fall. Well, anyway, uh, I remember all the time, of course, uh, reading G8 and his battle aces and all that stuff. And uh, one time, I'm a kid, see, and I'm, I'm sitting, this was in second grade. I'll tell you, it's, it's a truth. It was second grade Miss Shields. And Miss Shields was a thin, nervous woman. Uh, that was before they had really made a big deal about Freud. People were just called nervous. They were not called neurotic or sick in those days. They were just called nervous. Hey, by the way, do you remember when they had nervous people, any of you? You remember nervous people? Remember when they used to call people high-strung? I mean, I, I had a high-strung cousin. Uh, he was just called high-strung. And, of course, today he would be called sick, and he would, he would oh, have at least four years of analysis behind him by this time. Speaking of uh, analysis, do you know that there is a school in New Jersey that has already instituted compulsory group analysis for kindergarten grades on up? <laughs> That'll take care of any budding young Voltaires there might be in that crowd. Believe me, there isn't going to be a Rembrandt out of that crew. And certainly no Van Gogh ever come out of that school. Although I understand there's going to be a lot of, a wonderful crop of good real estate agents come out of that crew. And they're looking forward to it. The junior JC over there is really... <laughs> but that's, that's on another, another complete other... Uh, uh, hold it, hold it there. Easy, boy. Hold it, hold it. Relax out there. You're an American. Okay. All right. We know that. So, okay. Okay. Are you secretly against Roger Maris? No, I'm not, actually. I like Maris. It's funny. Uh, and I'm, I'm for Mantle. I also would like to point out, neither one of these guys, if they play all the rest of their life doing nothing but hitting home runs are going to come near Babe Ruth's home run record. Are you aware of that? Do you know that Babe Ruth hit enough home runs in his lifetime that if he hit 70 home runs in one year, he would have to hit 70 home runs 10 years straight to reach his lifetime record of home runs? Are you aware of that? Do you know that who came closest to breaking Babe Ruth's home run record of 60? Babe Ruth. He hit 59 one year. <laughs> Nobody else did that either. I mean, it's always great. I mean, I, I like to see a record broken. But the big record is how many have you done? Uh, in other words, how good were you yesterday? And the day before that? And the year before that? And the year before that? And the year before that? I mean, there are a lot of one-book authors around. Oh, they're fine. I mean, they wrote a good book. I mean, I'm not arguing about that. But let's see your next one. I mean, let's let's see what happens. And, and Ruth, did you did you hear the story about about Ty Cobb? There was a line. Uh, uh, there's a line. Oh, that, you're wrong. You're wrong. It says radioactivity is not the same as radio. No, he did not make a mistake, madam. They both spring from the same sources, baby. You better get back there in your little cubby hole there and get with the lemon cookies. <laughs> be careful. Shepard might know more about this than you do, which would be a terrible thing to realize about somebody on the radio. <laughs> that would be awful, awful, awful. In hoc auricula conch, in est spittle lauk. That, of course, is the uh, Latin derivation of your problem. It has uh, not really the derivation, it's the description. Uh, but while we're on the subject of, uh, of radio <laughs> radioactivity, would you call a guy up and down, walking up and down Madison Avenue as a guy who's involved in radioactivity, selling spots? <laughs> 
All right, quit pushing me. I can I can come up with my own definitions of the world if you want, you know. But uh, you know, it's a it's a funny business when you want to really get down to who's who and who's an American, who isn't. Uh, the uh, the thing about oh, one more thing. Did you read the little note in the Times about Ty Cobb? Uh, Ty Cobb. Uh, this woman says uh, she keeps writing me and says, Shepard, she really hates baseball. See, she says baseball is not. It does not come out of life. I don't know what it comes out of, madam. <laughs> I'd like to know. Maybe it's something. It's a visitation from a terrible other world. I suspect that might. Of course, that is also part of life too, madam. The other world and the visitations, madam. Uh, it is. It's a terrible thing to have to realize. Strip teasers, they're all part of life, too, you know. Awful. Guys that play tenor horns, guys that fist fight in the dark, guys that give sermons. It's all part of life, you know. Guys that write great books, guys that, uh, you know, sit around and do nothing but polish their glasses and clear their throat. It's all part of life, madam, whether you like it or not. You cannot separate certain things and say, since I do not like these things and they are silly, and my husband watches it all the time, and that makes it even rottener. They are not part of life. I refuse to concede it. Well, all right, argue this. Ty Cobb, who is an extraordinary operator in many ways, one day, without any explanation, came up to bat, looked down at the third baseman, who was playing a little bit wide of the bag, and says, Look out, Joe! It was Jumpin' Joe Dugan of the New York Yankees, who was playing third, a very good third baseman. So he says, Look out, Joe! Well, Joe Dugan looked down at Ty Cobb, and he realized he was in for trouble. With that, Cobb nails one right down the line, just inside of where, where Dugan should have been playing. A double down the line. The next time Cobb comes up, he said, this time, you see, Dugan now is playing in what they call the safety position or the, or the standard third base. He's not going to be off the... He was a little wide the first time. See, now he's playing standard. So he can jump either way. With that, Cobb looks down and says, Look out, Joe! He drills one just to the right of him this time in the slot between the shortstop and the third baseman, just out of reach. Dugan slides in the dirt in the left field for a single. The third time, and no one knows why Cobb did this, why he suddenly settled on Dugan that day. The third time up, he looks down at, at, at Dugan and he hollers, Look out, Joe, with that right over his head. A line drive just out of reach of his glove down the line for a double. By this time, Dugan was nervous. And the fourth time... Cobb completely ignored Dugan and singled routinely to right <laughs> for his fourth straight hit. Just an ordinary day's work. Are you trying to tell me, madam, that isn't part of life? How would you like to have your husband needle you like that? All right, baby. With that, he takes a fork, one meatball up on the chandelier. Watch this one now. You say, stop that. With that the next one behind the refrigerator. All right, feel that one, baby. And the next one right in your left eye. <laughs> and the third one he routinely eats. <laughs> I mean, with no explanation, you see, madam. I mean, it's just, you know, this is all part of life. So sit down, will you? You are outclassed. I mean, seriously, you're totally outcalibered. And, you know, anyway, speaking of that, of that thing about beware of low-flying planes... I'll tell you about the low-flying planes. I'm sitting in second grade one day with all the other little slobs that were learning to grow up to be great Americans, and we were all preparing for the Signal Corps. Little we realize it. Uh, various, some of us Signal Corps, a few of us got into the infantry, those of us who weren't nippy enough on our feet when we were taking the exams. And then, then of course, a few of the guys got into the Air Corps. Several of them got into the Navy, by the way. No one could understand that because ours was a non-Navy neighborhood. You know, there are Navy neighborhoods. 
And we lived in a non-Navy neighborhood. Actually, we lived in a Coast Artillery neighborhood. Uh, for some reason, everybody wanted... Either that or the 38th Infantry Division. <laughs> you know that the, that the division that all the guys were drafted into from my neighborhood was one of the very few divisions, Carl, this might interest you, that was such a bad division. It's a fact that this division was sent down on maneuvers down in the Mississippi, and they got into fistfights nightly with themselves. They just fought constantly, incessantly. Guys were murdering each other. The, the division was so bad, it was one of the few divisions in the history of the American Army that had to be completely disbanded. They sent them to all other kinds of divisions. They started all over again. <laughs> That's the truth. And all these guys were from my neighborhood. And they were from my second grade class. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why. They were not particular. Yeah, that's the truth. I Look, I came within a hair's breadth of winding up in that same division. And by the way, they gave these divisions great names. This was the worst Nebus division in the history of the Army. They gave them names like, like uh, Cyclone, you know, like Dynamic, Clawed Fist, Iron Hammer, you know, great names like that. All the guys sitting around with their nearsighted eyes, you know, all the T-5s with their wooden guns. <laughs> Boy... For a while, you know, for a while, I was in a real fighting outfit, and, and I'll never forget learning about war. And uh, this is when I first got in the Army, and it was, it was you know, I was a, I was a kid. I'd, I'd grown up on Errol Flynn, you know, and Van Johnson, and I had, you know, I had ideas. I knew who good guys were and bad guys, and I was always looking for that lieutenant that looked like Van Johnson, you know, who was going to lead me into the pillbox there. And every time, uh, you know, it would take that, that, difficult, uh, that difficult hill and all that, and I kept looking around for the guy I knew who was going to be killed. You know the tall, lanky kid from Brooklyn, uh, whose whose uh, father had had the grocery store, and he had just gotten married, and uh, he got a letter saying that he his wife had just had a baby, and you know the one that in all the stories jumps around and hollers and says "Whoopee, hot diggity dog," and uh, shows everybody the picture, and you know he's going to get killed in the next reel. I never met that guy in the army, actually. I know one guy who got a letter about that you know that same problem, but all he did was turn green. <laughs> of course, that's another story. That'll come later. We'll tell you about that later on after the show. But uh, anyway, uh, we're, we're sitting around there, you know, and, and they take us off, and they take us down to this to this this uh, this iron sort of a, oh, a corrugated iron place down there where they had, where they showed movies in this camp. It had a lot of sawdust on the floor and wooden seats and all that, and this is the beginning of the war, you know. And all the movies I had ever seen about the war, we were winning. I mean, seriously. I mean, any kind of movie. Even the newsreel movies, we were winning. And, and I mean, you know, the movies. I, I had just seen things like uh, Give Them the Business in Burma with Don Amici. And the kind of thing when Don Amici and Errol Flynn would drop behind the lines. And, oh, the Japs. Oh, terrible things happened to the Japs immediately. Well, anyway, I, I had been brought up on that. And this was the first movie I ever saw like this. Uh, I'll never forget it. I'm sitting there on my little wooden seat wearing my big tin hat. And I was surrounded by all these nearsighted guys who had come into the Army with me, you know, all these little skinny nearsighted guys, all of them roughly 17 years old, transparent, skin troubles. All of us were just, uh, just out of the little orphan Annie stage and just about to begin reading Spicy Western when the Army got us. And uh, there we were, you see, sitting there. And uh, an officer came out and he says, Men, you are about to be orientated. Uh, I am the orientation officer in this organization, and I'll tell you this, I can orientate a dog. There hasn't been a man yet come through this command who hasn't left here thoroughly orientated. Now, a lot of you guys don't know what orientation means. Well, after today's session, you are going to have a slight idea 
of what it means to be orientated by First Lieutenant Jack Gurney. I am the best orientation officer in the entire Second Army. Any of you guys want to argue about it? I'll be willing to take on any of you guys. I'll take off these bars and man-to-man I'll orientate you. All right, now, Corporal, will you please turn on a machine? With that, the lights went down, and on came this this movie. Well, it showed a bunch of German soldiers. Square-jawed, gray-silver eyes, swimming a river. Like machines, in formation. Yes. And the voice said, you are now seeing a film of a German Bangalore torpedo team going into action against a pillbox on the Maginot line. Watch carefully, men. This is a magnificently performed, a magnificently executed maneuver. And we're watching, and it's gray, you know, all, fu- all fuzzy. You see the tracers coming out of the pillbox. These are German films. Crying out, where they got? I'm looking for Errol Flynn. I'm looking around for Van Jump. Once in a while, a rocket. And I see these guys, and they're swimming across the river. And these guys are carrying along with them something on their back. I never saw anything like it. Suddenly, they deploy on the opposite bank, Carl. You should have seen it. It was fantastic. These guys fan out. They were. They looked nothing like any of the guys I was in the Army with. With that, one by one, they begin to crawl forward. Suddenly, they leaped up, six of them, with a Bangalore torpedo. Up they went. Right up to the side of this, this pillbox. Boom! No pillbox. No soldiers. All six of them gone. Fantastic Bangalore torpedo maneuver. And with that, the next the next voice said, And now you are about to watch a strafing raid on the streets of Rotterdam, photographed through the gun cameras of a Stuka. Uh, you will have to excuse the shaky condition of the film because these were taken in action. These guys were hitting everybody. They didn't miss anything. This guy was going along picking off street lights as he went down. Some clown went down the street on a bicycle. This guy shot at his tires first, then knocked his toolkit off, and the pow between the eyes. All the while, I'm waiting for Van Johnson. The lights came up. I'm sitting there with my wooden gun. They had given me a wooden gun the day before, carved cleverly to resemble a British Enfield, which went out of action 48 years before in the last skirmish of the Boer War. I'm sitting there. The first lieutenant came out and says, You men are now on your way to being orientated. Little did he realize he was speaking the truth. <laughs> 